Welcome to this podcast recording from the 2022 Pod Partnership Opportunities in Drug Delivery Conference. The Pod Conference is produced by the Conference Forum. For more information, please visit podconference.com. Enjoy the podcast recording from Pod 2022. Today, we want to spend a little bit of time with uh, two experts in vaccine development and explore. Uh, the challenges of current vaccines as well as potential new and uh, unique uh, routes of, of therapy. Uh, on my right is uh, Derek O'Hagan. He has many years of experience in vaccines. Uh, contrary to what you see on the screen, he's currently the senior advisor and a fellow at GSK and he has previously worked at Novartis in vaccine research and development. On my left is Jeff Blue, more than 28 years of experience at Merck, and he is currently, uh, according to his title, it's accurate, the Executive Director of Vaccine Drug Product Development. So welcome to both of you. Uh, Jeff and Derek are here to provide their perspectives on the challenges that are faced when we're developing vaccines, but also to answer your questions. So uh, there are microphone stands up here. I must confess, I haven't seen them used very much, but it would be great to see this panel uh, break the mold and have people ask questions. Uh, we don't intend to wait until the end to leave time for questions. We would prefer that you ask them as they pop into your head. So jump up anytime, grab a mic, and uh, at the appropriate time, I'll ask you to, to make your question. If not, and everyone remains shy, then you'll have to listen to us for the whole 30 minutes. Um, to set the context, we wanted to put up one slide. And if we could just put the slide on, please. Uh, this is a slide that, that shows uh, a number of uh, different uh, viruses and the uh, vaccines that have been created to treat them. And the real message here is if you look at uh, the red color, that's uh, where the morbidity level was prior to the introduction of the vaccine. And on the other side of the screen, uh, you will see the improvement in morbidity. And I think the, the key message is simply, it's very high. In many cases, it's 100%, but in, in, on average, it's more than 90%. So what does this mean? Um, I mean, I think it means that Obviously, vaccines work incredibly well. Uh, they benefit public health. And uh, we now need to take a look at what can we do to make them easier to distribute, easier to manufacture, and what are other avenues of delivery that might be beneficial for vaccines. So with that in mind, uh, I want to ask both of uh, Jeff and, and Derek to, to comment on the current routes of administration, which is primarily intramuscular, and what are the challenges from a manufacturing and distribution standpoint. So Derek, why don't you lead us off with your thoughts? So this is a good slide for a number of reasons. It tells you that we have very safe and effective vaccines. And this is actually can be considered the standard vaccines. There have actually been several more introduced after this slide was created. And this tells you pictorially, it's mostly needle and syringe. Needle and syringe works really well. Um, and built into this, the high efficacy is important. So you've got vaccines that work very well, 
they're administered to everyone, sometimes young children. So the safety hurdles are very high. Often the vaccines have been introduced quite some time ago, and we don't actually know what the correlates of protection are. We just know that they work. So if you decide you want to do something different, you need to figure out how you can achieve that efficacy in the absence of the circulating pathogen because the vaccines worked. So this kind of emphasizes the challenges if you want to introduce something new. And we, you know, we can move beyond these traditional approaches and look at some of the new ones. And when people, I've worked a lot on different routes of administration, different routes of delivery, pretty much we've tried all of them. And maybe flu is the one where it's been pushed a lot, maybe alternative routes are really going to make a difference. And, well, maybe there's been some success in that area, but the success means that the hurdles keep rising. So now, alongside traditional flu, you've got high dose, you've got adjuvanted, you've got intranasal, all kind of improving the profile. So then the hurdle to show something better becomes more challenging. Now, of course, we're seeing the introduction of RNA vaccines in that space, which may result in a more efficacious vaccine. Obviously, that's the hope. So the hurdles are high to improve on, on vaccines. And, you know, I've been in the business a long time, so I've seen a number of products be approved. And when I started out, you know, pretty much most of the vaccines were injected on aluminium. And I was told that it was really, really difficult to get novel adjuvants approved. And in, that, in the time of my career, I've seen novel adjuvants be researched, developed, and now licensed. In that same time period, I've tried extensively on various different routes of delivery and alternative administration devices, and none of them have succeeded. That either means I'm really bad at it, or it's really difficult, maybe both, but it kind of emphasizes some of the challenges. And as Paul said, we're looking for this to be an engagement, a discussion. Um, I'll hand on to Jeffrey, but please, if you have got questions, bring them up. Great, thanks very much, Derek. Jeff? Yeah, and I think to add into that, right, so <clears throat> when you think about vaccines now and the challenges we face, so as we know, the majority are given IM, you know, needle syringe. So that's one aspect. Two is distribution. How do you get into the rest of the world, right? So how do we get it into those places where it's a little bit more challenging to get through? And so that's one of the things that we're also working at is how do we minimize the amount of doses you actually have to give, right? A lot of the vaccines that you see on that screen are two doses, three doses regime. So how can we make alternative formulations that allow you to do what we would call one shot? So you have potentially getting one shot at time zero, that gives you your prime and then potentially have a boost. So the sustained and controlled pulsatile release that is being discussed through this device and uh, develop delivery activities. Um, looking at alternatives such as ID delivery, internasal delivery, how can we get those more introduced into the world today? Those are some of the areas that we are focusing on and as well as alternative drying technologies, right? So vaccines are labile. They are not normally very stable. So how do we minimize cold chain and get them to the patients that need it throughout the world. Great. So you mentioned something, Jeff, and I guess I'd like to connect it with a comment that, that Bob Langer made yesterday in his keynote, which was uh, the use of, of uh, 
sustained release uh, within the delivery of a vaccine. I mean, what, what do both of you think of that as a concept? I mean, is that viable? And is that deliverable by uh, needle and syringe, or is that going to require some other form? So, I don't know, Derek, I saw you put your hand up there. Yeah. You smile, must have some no, comment. It, it, it always makes me laugh, because I've, I've had the same story from Bob since the late 70s. And, and so I, I did Well, my, he hasn't given up. <laughs> no, no, absolutely. I, I did my PhD on controlled release of vaccines in the mid-80s. And so what does that mean? That there's great data emerging in the HIV space, the controlled release and um, continued administration versus intermittent can drive a B-cell response that can give you broad neutralizing antibodies that's really desirable in HIV. So there's no question that, uh, you know, mechanistically, immunologically, sustained release is attractive and can almost certainly make better vaccines. Collectively, we failed to bring forward a technology that can actually accomplish it. And so, in, so we've all failed as an industry, da, 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 but it's a, it's a complex challenge. And you know, we, could, we could debate for hours about the pros and cons of sustained release and how you accomplish it. You're not at the point of how you administer it. You need to figure out a device or a technology that meets the requirements for product development that can actually be utilized. Yeah, I'm, I'll just add on to that, right? So the idea of control impulsive tie release is a, an excellent part process. But again, getting back to vaccines are very labile. So how do you inject at time zero, allow it to stay in your body, circulating, and being able to be still stable in that physiological conditions? Those are some of the challenges. And then do you have to have a burst type of approach at time zero and at three months or six months, or can you have a sustained release and have that effect? Might be a question. Question, please go ahead, sir. This is a nice slide of the, the, the vaccines that have worked. I wonder if you could comment on vaccine uh, targets that haven't worked. I was thinking RSV, HIV, places where tremendous effort has gone into making the vaccines, but to no avail. And whether there's anything that can be distinguished between the ones that do or the ones that don't work, or is it just happen chance? That's a great question. Jeff, why don't you have tackle that first, and then we'll let uh, Derek add on. Yeah, so, I mean, it's finding the right antigen and adjuvant to be able to make those vaccines work. So if you look at RSV, um, it has been an area of focus for multitudes of pharmaceutical companies to try to develop those vaccines. And recently, I think there was data that just came out that showed there were some very positive results with an RSV vaccine. So I think it's just finding the right structure of the antigens that make sense for that specific vaccine that you're going after. Yeah, and again, RSV is a great story of why people failed and what failed versus what looks like it's now succeeded. So, you know, there was a data released by GSK last week that showed 90% efficacy in elderly subjects with an adjuvant of recombinant protein. And, you know, the adjuvant obviously makes a difference. Uh, we could talk about that, but it's really antigen design. So for many, many years, people didn't understand the protein and people were focusing on, fo on post-fusion F when in essence what they needed was pre-fusion F. And this was a consequence of tremendous work uh, done at the NIH, understanding structure of antigens, intro introducing a whole er era of structural vaccinology 
and it's now being applied to many other different immunogens, particularly viral proteins, but also bacterial proteins. And it's how technology has evolved, cryo-electron microscopy and various other techniques, to actually understand the structure of immunogens and how you can utilize those to make better vaccines. And so RSV, there are vaccines that will be submitted for licensure, not just from GSK, in the next at least three of either completed phase three or are completing phase three. So it's very likely that we will have RSV vaccines quite soon. HIV is a whole different level of challenge and problem. And there's an argument uh, that it's just that the, the diversity of that particular pathogen is just so great. And it's also a pathogen that takes out key immune cells. Um, so HIV has a level of challenge that's not yet been achieved, but in fact the technology of controlled release and driving the immune repertoire towards the precursor B cells that are broadly reactive with HIV, that's what's triggering a lot of interest. But again, it's requiring technological development to, to show that that's achievable from a product, even if you can do it in an experimental setting. Great. Thanks very much. Thanks for the question. Uh, I'd like to turn, if I could, to, you know, the, another route of administration. And, you know, during my time at, at Sanofi, while I was involved in devices, I interacted with, with the, the Pasteur group, which was, of course, developing vaccines. And I was always led to believe that uh, you got a very good immune response if you applied uh, a vaccine into the dermis. So could you comment on that as a route of administration? Because it would avoid what it appears many people dislike. I'm not really sure what the percentage of real uh, needle phobia is, but it would avoid the needles. So could, could you both give your thoughts on that? Yeah, uh, you know, I can go first. Um We've been looking at interdermal delivery now for the last, you know, two plus years at least within Merck and looking at um, microneedles and how they can um, be applied. When you think about going into the Mantu technique, right, 100 microliter injection under the skin, it's a very difficult way of administering. Yesterday we had a talk from PharmaLatch and their device that they have that can potentially help in that um, giving a liquid formulation. And then you also had the memetics talk from Vaxis on their patch technology. Um, I think it is definitely an area of focus for a lot of pharmaceutical companies to look at this, right? Because I think in the end, you would love to be able to see at-home administration of vaccines yeah. into the future. Um, the, but there are many challenges with going to an interdermal delivery, specifically on, on microarray patches. You have how much dose can you load on those patches? How, where is it loaded on the patches at the tip? Does it get to the base? What's the transfer efficiency upon administration of those patches to the skin? So those are a couple of the challenges that you face, as well as what adjuvants can be used. You know, Derek had mentioned earlier, aluminum adjuvants has been, you know, one of the gold standards for quite a long time. So aluminum is not usually utilized in ID delivery. So what other alternative adjuvants can be applied to be able to improve the immunogenicity? You have a lot of antigen-presenting cells there. It's been shown to be very robust with flu, with rabies. We've done studies with zoster and the pox viruses, so we know the technology is going to work. It's a matter of matching the right vaccine and adjuvant and technology 
to give to that specific program. Okay. Sean, if you just, uh, do, can we just let Derek comment on that, if you don't mind waiting before you answer, ask your question? Go ahead, Derek. It, it's a good one. I'll try and be brief. I've been working on skin delivery for over 20 years. I think I've tried every technology that's emerged. Um, coated microarrays, dissolvable microarrays, microneedles, et cetera, et cetera. And we've taken a few technologies into clinical evaluation. But it's, it's good to, you know, why do things succeed or not? And I, th I think that's something we need to, to maybe we, we, in advance we said we talk about it. On a couple of occasions, I was working with microarrays and I was working in large vaccine companies and it was like, okay, let's take this forward and try and develop it. And then the argument was, but who will pay for it? And in essence, unless there's a clear advantage and pretty much all the trials I've seen, including the ones I was involved in, on flu vaccines in the skin, it's the same outcome. There's no benefit. There's no real attractiveness in terms of likely favorable outcomes. And the bottom line is you've got a needle and syringe and then you've got these coated or dissolvable microarrays and you've got to create a whole manufacturing technology, build a facility, spend a few hundred million. And so from where does the return on that investment come? unless somebody, some patient or some organization or some government will pay a premium price for that product, then you never get the return. And the premium price is only justified by outcomes. And the evidence we had from phase one and all the trials we've seen, it's just a different way of administering to get the same outcome, same level of hemagglutin, hemagglutin inhibiting antibodies, same T-cell response. So there wasn't the drive to really do it, because the argument was, well, what's the point of the investment when you don't get any return on it? Okay, I'm going to come back to that in a moment, but I want to let Sean ask his question first. Yeah, it's actually a perfect lead, and of course, since I'm a microneedle guy from the old days, I have to at least defend a little bit. There may be certain use cases, for example, a pandemic, when I don't want to group a bunch of people together in line and could take more of an Amazon delivery approach with a microneedle patch, that could be interesting. Um, but my real question was about I mean, microneedle delivery is, you know, uh, got lots of barriers for manufacturing, as you just highlighted, but you've got a room full of people that can deliver subcutaneously. Is this just a naive question, but why, why don't we deliver vaccines subcutaneously if you have all sorts of ways to do it? Is it just a, a lack of efficacy with that route? Yeah, I mean, on, on the, yeah, so I, I talked about flu vaccines for skin delivery, and that's not really been achieved yet. And there's a whole different argument in a pandemic setting, in distribution, and will it stabilize, et cetera. And a number of companies are making that argument. In essence, they need to create the market. And do we actually need another pandemic? I don't think we want one of them. It may come in inevitably, but, and, and the, the, the route of administration, I mean, the IM just has become established, and I work a lot on adjuvants, and there's a lot about mechanism of action to do with the adjuvants and the muscle tissue and the engagement and the access to local lymph nodes. It's simple and easy to do, and in fact, it's better tolerated than subcutaneous. And of course, what that tells you, more, the more superficial you're going, the less well-tolerated it t tends to be. And tolerability is that, you know, is it pain, inflammation, etc. The challenge with skin is it's florid, obvious, superficial. So is it worse tolerability or just more obvious, the problem? And, and that, was, that was a real problem. The company doesn't exist anymore. I can talk about it. We worked a lot with IMA, 
who were doing a lot of skin disruption and applying a vaccine for transcutaneous immunization. And ultimately, the amount of skin disruption they were doing was leaving like a, a, vi a visible scar superficially. And, you know, the first marketing lady who saw it just said, no way, I'm not walking around with that on my arm so everyone can see it. And that kind of killed it. What I would say um, on sub-Q versus IM, right, um, when you think about from a patient perspective, it's a needle, whether it's a little bit longer needle and exactly where it's going in versus sub-Q. So there hasn't been as much emphasis in looking into the sub-Q as an IM, because IM has been the gold standard. Uh, with regard to the patches, I would agree with you that I think there's a lot of value in getting vaccines into patches. Um, when you think about BMGF, WHO, Gavi, and the VIPS analysis that's ongoing, right, there is a, you know, a, a concerted effort across industry as well um, to be able to try to get MR onto a patch or HPV onto a patch because distribution, uh, supply chain becomes a lot easier when you think about some of the packouts. You know, we've had a couple partnerships with companies where, you know, when you think about shipping to low and middle income markets and getting the vaccines to where they need to be, patches have a lot of advantage, less needles, less sharps. Um, so I do think it's the wave of the future. It's a matter of getting the right formulation um, and the right patch design to be able to give it to the patients in the right way. But they will be coming. So if I can, let me kind of build on what you said about the cost factor, which I get. That's that's important. But I understand that, you know, most of the current vaccines need some form of cold chain uh, shipping. And I talked to the world's largest manufacturer. I talked to their CEO, and he, he told me that between 10 and 20% of product that leaves the manufacturer of the vaccine never gets to the end intended final destination. So what are your thoughts on, you know, 10 to 20% of the product being lost does that help make the business case for, for not just dermal, but other forms of delivery? What do you, what do you think about that? Go ahead, either one or both. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, realistically, even in the, in the world of, you know, patch technology and others, I think there's going to have to continue to be a cold chain. I think what you're seeing with 10 to 20% of vaccines being lost uh, during shipping, that's related to accidental freestyles of adjuvant vaccines, which ends up causing agglomeration and other issues that occur, um, as well as other vial breakage, right? So I think the cost perspective is to move in this direction. We know that the gold standard is needle syringe, about a dollar a dose. We also realize for the convenience that these alternative deliveries do provide, you will have to pay some type of premium for that. The idea is how much and how are you going to be able to work with this? And that's, you know, one of the things through the VIPS analysis, um, as well as working with BMGF and Gavi on is how do we ensure that payers are willing to help pay for the advantages that these come about? Okay, great. Derek, anything to add? I mean, you know, one thing, we, if you look at this, one thing we haven't emphasized is there are many, many different kinds of vaccines. You know, the live attenuated vaccines, there are protein polysaccharide conjugate vaccines, there are now nucleic acid vaccines, there are protein vaccines. And sometimes the, the I mean, it's very clear in the RNA space that stabilization, thermostability is the key thing, um, other than you know, reducing the reactor, making them more, more tolerable, et cetera. So, you know, different vaccines require different challenges. Often in, in, in uh, you know, with some of the protein polysaccharide conjugates, for example, 
maybe Lyo is established, but then it's perceived as unattractive if you need to reconstitute because then it makes it more difficult to administer, etc. So the drying can bring advantages, um, but it sometimes brings challenges too. So you know, most of these, they, they are pre-filled syringes. And that's what most of the products look like. For ease of administration, it's difficult to beat that. And again, we talked about the pandemic setting. In the pandemic setting, you know, most of us got immunized in our local pharmacy. Maybe it's a 10-minute drive. Some of us probably got immunized at the airport when we were waiting to step behind a curtain and get immunized. So the, the access piece is already pretty good for yeah. vaccines. Okay, great. So we've just got a couple minutes left. I, I really would like to have, maybe, Derek, you can... Oh, is there a question? I'm sorry. Oh, go ahead. You, you've got the floor. Thank I you. I have actually had shining a in my eye. Sorry. I had a similar question to Sean, but just taking it a little more forward, right? I mean, sub-Q is becoming a, a large topic of discussion now, right? Even in oncology, now we're veering more towards sub-Q. And Jeff did talk about self-administration as well. So I'm, I'm just curious, how big is the self-administration idea in, in the vaccine space? And with that said, will that now revive some of the conversations around sub-Q potentially? Because uh, clearly, from a self-administration standpoint, sub-Q would be the way to go. So just curious to hear your thoughts. I mean, so, so there are no vaccines that are self-administered other than travel vaccines you can take orally. So the, the element of how one gets a vaccine licensed and approved for self-administration, not yet done. So whoever proposes and wants to bring that into use needs to deal with all the hurdles and again well which vaccine and how do you ensure compliance and is it a vaccine in a pandemic setting that everyone will be desperate to take or is it not that and then you've really got to worry about compliance because there's a you know a public health perspective around that so it's a complex regulatory space that has not yet been seriously dealt with i don't believe <laughs> Yeah, and even when you think about going to a patch and have an at-home administration of a patch, right, from a vaccine perspective, th this hasn't been done. And so a lot of regulatory hurdles to get through to be able to get to the point of even having at-home administration. But you do see that that's the wave of the future. So could you go to a subcutaneous injection at home in the future? I think it could be done, um, but it is a long way and a lot of uh, government uh, regulations to get through to make that happen. Thank you. Great. Derek, quick, quick comment, if I could ask you, on nasal pros and cons, and then I'll finish with one short question. We've only got a couple of minutes left. So, so, so for, for 20 years, there was lots of interest in intranasal. People worked hard, and then there were some major setbacks where vaccines were approved in Switzerland and then withdrawn from the market because they had an adjuvant that triggered Bell's palsy. And then finally, there was a big breakthrough of an intranasal flu vaccine that preclinic, sorry, in, in the clinic, the clinical evaluation looked great in young children. And then the market hasn't really worked out quite so well for a lot of reasons. And the attractiveness of intranasal seems to have declined. Okay, great. And I'm going to give you the maybe harder one, oral. What do you think about that possibility? Um, with, you know, I think we've been talking in vaccines for a long time about being able to put a vaccine on a potato chip, right? So there is only uh, three or four orally administered vaccines in the world today, 
right? Uh, there is a lot of challenges to get through the overall gut, right? Getting it into the intestines, being able to get it across the intestines into the actual body. So yes, I think it is some area that we do continue to explore. I mean, Merck, we actually have one vaccine that is orally given, um, but there is a lot of challenges in bringing forward oral vaccines. But if somebody can achieve that, that'll be a very good goal. We know that Vaxart's been working on some of that as well. Great. Okay. Well, with that, I'm going to thank you, Derek and Jeff. Uh, very enlightening conversation. I've enjoyed it very much. And hopefully everyone in the audience has. And with that, we will conclude this panel. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this podcast recording from The Pod, Partnership Opportunities in Drug Delivery 2022 Conference. For more information, please visit podconference.com.